Hello, everyone, and we are back with another episode, episode 15, to be specific, of the Dream Shakers podcast. I am George Nunez, alongside with my co-host, Stefan Odom, and today we have a special guest. We have someone that is looking to revolutionize the way we think about the gig economy and how we could monetize volunteering. She is from the Michigan area and spent 20 years in Atlanta. She also went to Emory University where she majored in political science and government. And she's currently going through the Atlanta Tech Village Accelerator to push forward her startup. Please give a warm welcome to Rejoice Jones. Rejoice, thank you for having us and thank you for you having being me. on the show. Yeah. And I'd like to add, we're in Google for Startups now, which is a big thing. We just got into that. So congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks so much. Definition moment. Um, so so building off of that, um, and building a bit off your background, we just want to set the stage, set the stage for our audience, let them get to know you a bit better and understand that and understand more about your background. So given that you're from Mexican area and that you've lived in Atlanta for more than 20 years, how was it, how was it growing up? Right. And what are your thoughts on the progression of the tech scene within Atlanta? Oh, I'm, I'm, I think that I'm fairly new to sort of like the tech scene in, in general. Mm -hmm. I think, so I say that to say like, although we've been operating for about two years with tech, without tech years before that, but I think really understanding what tech is, how it's growing and advancing, I'm just now within the past year, understanding like all you can do with technology. Um, mm. And being at a resident now at Atlanta Tech Village has really helped a lot. Um, not only to just be in the space around other technologists and companies, but just fully immersed in the possibilities of everything you can do using technology. So it's been great. It's been a, a blessing, if anything. Um, wow. And that that's definitely amazing to hear um and i i want us to to stay right there right mm -hmm. talking about the tech scene what it's like in atlanta uh, we mentioned a part of your introduction that you were a part of the atlanta tech village and you just mentioned that you're a part of google for startups so how has that been able to help you grow as a founder and also grow Vower. Yeah, so I think um, most of us who don't come from technology, or this is my opinion, I just thought when you started a business, you just started, right? You just go out, find a customer and build from there. And even that mindset is of a revolution prior to now, where everything is tech and power and you need it, you need the digital content, you need it to have a footprint um, and your business to have a footprint in the world. So from... <laughs> from introducing myself and my company to now, um, it's just been like a roller coaster of many groups and, and groups in Atlanta that are well connected. Um, one group is Goody Nation, and it's under the direction of Joey Womack. 
Joey, I've, I heard of him. When I first was thinking about Bauer, I just went to a few like um, uh, coffee, I mean, not coffee hours, after hours. What is the, um, gosh, what happens when you go after work and get drinks? Happy, happy hours. Happy hour. <laughs> I went to a few happy hours. Um, Ryan Gravel and the generator. Ryan Gravel was the person who, whose thesis is what we know as the Beltline. He has a group called The Generator. guy who I went to school with was like, hey, I go to these things. I meet cool tech people. You should come. I was like, cool, I'll go. Went, and then that was the first group of tech people I met. And then one guy that I met there was like, oh, you need to meet Joey. I'm going to introduce you to Joey. And I just kept hearing this man's name everywhere. Like, you got to meet Joey. So he's like this tech godfather in, like, uh, the black space. So, <laughs> so even when, like, when he when we were at a similar event, I was like, oh, man, that's Joey. Like, I, I even was feeling anxious. Like, I had to meet this person. And I didn't even know what I was doing or what I would do at work. But it became this feeling of narrative that it's some people here in the city that had different keys and access and levels of understanding that can help me at the infancy of my company to grow at an accelerated um, pace. So I met Joey, I got in a good nation. Now it's me and two, uh, 200 other startups and we're in small groups and we're meeting and we're pitching and we're trying to figure out what all this means. And then from there, oh, you should apply to Atlanta Tech Village. You should apply to Goody Nation. We know people in in, in these um, spaces. Oh, you need this for your website. Oh, you need to find a, a CTO or you need to find someone to do this. It became me going out here and trying to figure it out my own just from using the regular skills you do when you Google something and figure it out to it just being a hub for here's the a la carte for what you need, what you need. Go out and get it, but you don't have to work so hard. So from that experience till now, it's been life-changing. And I will say like Atlanta already is a very uh, small place in the sense where there's not, um, it's a small community of, of, of pockets of people the tech scene and one area is creative scene that you know this these creative dance scene sneaker scene and as you sort of get more well versed with who the, those people are but more so just what those spaces and communities really they are just pockets of communities have to offer you start to say okay I can use this to leverage. I can use this to build what I'm building and actually just starts to make more sense and match well with what, what we were doing specifically. I'm going to pull you in a, a different direction just for a moment um, and, and get more into the, the core background of, of the company more generally, right? So we, we did, we were able to see that you studied political science and government at Emory and that your, your LinkedIn profile explicitly mentioned sustainable community development, right? So I wanted to know if these experiences had any impact on, on what Valor was supposed to be, like what it was going to aspire to be and what does the company's social enterprise or uh, social enterprise organization designation mean yeah so kind of to go further back when growing up in michigan my dad was a community organizer and my mom was a social worker so i always grew up 
not really understanding why I was always around a group of people somewhere doing something, helping someone. But my reality as a child was never just me. We always had something to do on Saturdays for the community. We always we always had to go somewhere and help pass something out. And so as a little girl, I grew up understanding that my life wasn't just my own. Like there were people outside of me that for some reason in my little girl brain, I had to things for or spend time with or experience something or, or have an experience with. So those I, I, ideals formulated to me, I went to, I was actually pre-med at Emory and I was on my way to being a doctor. And I was just in physics class, my last class, before I'm ready to go to medical school, take, take the MCAT and go to medical school. And I just was like, I'm just not feeling this anymore. And literally just changed everything from there, which is crazy. You don't do all this to get to Emory and, you know, take all these hard courses just to walk away. But yeah, um, my senior year at Emory, I lived in South Africa. And wow. the first time that I saw from the township perspective, from a very basic um, perspective, how communal economics work. And so a few of my friends who were at other schools um, studying abroad, we came together and started a micro enterprise called Ubami Beads. And we worked with um, women from local townships as they sold their paper bead jewelry. We would sell it on campuses here in America. And it was the first time that I realized, oh shit, stop. Can, I, can I cuss a little sometimes? Cursing. Okay. Fine. Fine. Sometimes fine. it slips out and I don't know how <laughs> I go here, but. Yeah, be you, be authentic. Yeah, yeah. So it was the first time that I realized like, man, like you really didn't need all the things I need back home to survive. You these communities had each other and they had a skill and that was it for them. That's all they needed. And they were happy around. I'm not saying that, of course, they, you're in a township. Doesn't mean that you don't want more. But what I'm saying is for the joy and beauty of what they were able to create, what they had um, was life changing for me. And then from there, I moved back to America and was wanting to go to law school and got denied to a few schools and was really bitter towards the U.S. because I felt like the U.S. owed me. I felt like <laughs> I did everything I was supposed to do. And I know that's like, yeah, just do better on your LSAT. Like, <laughs> this this rejoice is like, yeah, study harder on your LSAT, you would have got in. Like, I'm not. But it was at that time I felt <clears throat> really, like, jaded towards this whole work really hard, go to school, be this token and I'm not saying I was in that time consciously sort of like um, working in this robotic way that I thought would work, but I was. And yeah, that shit wasn't working. I was working at a, at a corporate um, immigration firm as a paralegal. And one day I was just like, yeah, I'm done with this and moved to Mexico. Wow. So I moved to Mexico for a year when I was 26. And that is when I... That is when Bauer and everything I had done in the past in um, the communities in Atlanta, which we'll talk, which I'll, which I'll share, but everything up until there. And I was like, from here on out, this will be my life because I had met so many people in uh, um, Mexico mm-hmm. who their communities, I never met a mayor or city council 
or someone to come and tell them this is how you should do community. They just did it and they did it better than anything I had ever seen. And I was like, I'm going to come back and figure out a way how to do that here in Atlanta. And speaking of that, talking about volunteering, understanding that the gig economy is a booming and trending topic right now. We all know on this session what the gig economy is. Could you explain to the audience what it is so that they could have a better understanding and what made you want to focus on that market? You touched a bit about it in terms of going abroad, going to South Africa and going to Mexico, which is important, right? I studied abroad too. I went went to London. So that changed my whole view. Yeah, absolutely. But but talk about that and, and how that impacted your view. Yeah, so uh, currently we're about 34% of gig economy workers, which means independent contractors. So gone is the day where people are trying to find professions where they can work for 10, 20 years, you know, stay with the company, the whole pension is there, go to the company picnic six years. No. In the next few years, over 50% of our workforce in the U.S. will be gig workers. So I like to think of gig workers as... (laughs) <laughs> if you want to think about it just from a bare minimum sense, it's just like people who like, okay, I'll do that gig. Like I'll, I'll pick up that job. Really, it's it's how we've always worked in the barter system, right? I'll do this for this. We don't have to stay long. You don't have to know my name or my family. I'm just here to do an exchange and I'm off to the rest of my life. Now, because of Uber, Uber and Airbnb and how they sort of, basically transformed the way we see work or expanded it because we've always had pockets of independent contractors. Just now we have Upwork and Fiverr and a lot of other um, gig platforms where as an independent contractor, if you have a skill, you can exchange that skill for just five hours of work or two hours or just this one thing, depending on what you do. But so gig work is really just is everything, in my opinion, I even look at volunteering as gig work. I even look at interning as gig work because it's an exchange of skill for another desired, so a product or a service being exchanged between two parties. Um, That is the basis of doing some type of exchangeable work. And the person who does it is a gig worker or independent contractor for more legal purposes. And so I think of volunteering because... My whole thing of volunteering is different. I I think the whole word volunteer needs to, um, the definition and and sort of the concept behind it needs to be expanded. The traditional sense is, oh, you know, sometimes I think we think of volunteering as like the after-school church woman or the stay-at-home mom. And oh my gosh, we're going to go out to PTA and we're going to pass out things. Or we're going to go to the homeless shelter and pass out. And that is what people think when they think of volunteering. Giveaways, um, picking up trash, um, things that is something actually that is a recurring role even though they say you do it to solve something, these roles that we have kind of um, structured the word volunteer around uh, is very dated, right? So I think if if someone is building your house, 
or planting miles of trees, that's not longer, no longer really a volunteer, is it? That's like free work, free labor, independent gig worker type service. And so if we have set aside of a statue of laws that only allocates this free work towards this only entity of business being a nonprofit, I think that has to be changed and the policy needs to be changed around it because um, volunteering in, its, in a sense is robust. It is a business, it's a nonprofit typically that needs someone to come and help them with whatever. But most of the time it's admin work. Sometimes you can be out doing something, but now it's either, it's now build my website help me uh, with SEO and analytics for my e-commerce. It's more than just, oh, the traditional sense of what we used to. And so since the jobs have changed, so should the structure around the person who's doing it, the compensation in which um, they get um, rewarded for their, for their jobs, but also the platforms in which now we can use this workforce to help skill, upskill, and give more experience to people that probably don't have the traditional things you need to get in on the, the typical gig economy platform, which is a lot. Like Upwork, you have to have a lot um, to, to get in and kind of be competitive on those sites. Um, and so we need a, a new, we need a companion effort. And that's what Bauer is trying to, trying to do with volunteering and giving back and exchanging time for rewards. Uh, of course, and, and I'm gonna pass it back to Steph in a bit, but let's stay right here. How long do you think before government and regulators and even society adopts the whole gig economy culture? Oh, it's here. Like, I mean, like, yeah, I think the stats we were looking at, we're at 34%. Ages 18 through 34 are all gig workers within the age. By 2027, over 50%. With that same Gen Z millennials, over 50% of us, most of us are already doing some type of side work. Whether we get a 1099 for it or not, we're gigging all the time. Mm. And um, the pandemic really opened eyes to why we need more policy and infrastructure around this because they didn't know what to do with the PPP and gig workers. They didn't know what to do with how do we structure thousands and thousands of Uber drivers who, you know, got their paycheck maybe here and then with Airbnb and then here's like, how do we give them a, a, pay, a payment protection where, where they don't fit under this typical structure that we're used to working with? And so... Like I said, as um, this platform of how we do work and the future of work expands, so will the policy, the infrastructure, and even the people, the talent behind it. That definition and how we see it has to also expand. Mm -hmm. I think I think one piece that I'm, I'm definitely hearing resurface throughout these conversations is the need for the regulation, the need for certain safeguards, the need for ensuring we are, you know, operating in an environment in which these gig workers are taken care of. Um, and and one thing that you know I wanted to bring to surface here was you know thinking through the ways that your company has has sort of uh, thought about this, right? How has the Bauer platform um, thought about ensuring volunteers? 
are not being taken advantage of long term, right? Like what are what are going to be the safeguards and the dynamics in place to to ensure that the the dynamic between volunteers and organizations is is a healthy one? Yeah. Okay. So I like to take people through this thought process of like um, in, in Plato's laws or Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, they ask people to go on this journey of like, how would you create a world, right? So if I said, George or Steph, here's this land that is, no one lives on this land, but we're going to put people on this land. How should they work together? How how will we establish a system of economy where everyone pretty much is equal and, and there are things that are equitable for everyone to get in? And as as uh, as we have these conversations, we're going to start to notice there's a lot of um, a misalignment of how we think people should work, do work, and live their lives. And a lot of that probably will come down to the point of... Um, like economy is like what you get for what you do is an exchange. So a lot of maybe our thoughts will be different around how people get what, when, how, and who gets it. That's like politics all in So Who gets it, how much they get it, why and how do they get it? And so where we are now in the U.S. is a, as technology advances, so does the, the skills gap and the achievement gap that widens because you have scores of people who lack the skill in order to keep up with this technology. Mm-hmm. So there will become a great divergence soon. And so I think, and I study this and I say, okay, this is not, these numbers are not out of there. We have um, maybe over 30% of all small businesses and nonprofits failing each year. The main reason why is they can't find people to help them. They can't afford Upward, they can't afford always to go on Fiverr. They don't even know what they need most time. They need a team around the idea or the business, but they go out of they go out of business because they don't have that or they can't afford it. Eighty mm-hmm. percent of all small business owners right now are non-employers, so they're not doing W twos. They're doing ten ninety nines or they're just you know giving people money on the side. And so, as these businesses fail. Here the rise of uh, young professionals ready to work. Mm-hmm. Where are they going? Technology has now displaced a lot of the jobs where they would have been needed. A lot of the companies are realizing they can do more work with less people, but yet you have this 30% of small businesses and nonprofits that are dwindling because they don't know this side exists. Mm-hmm. And so you have this unequal balance of... Um, people without skill or experience and people who need skill and need those who are willing to be experienced in their field. And so the way that I look at it is why don't we just connect these two parties around um, what seems to be a, a, a race to sustainability for marginalized and struggling communities is really what it is. It's communal economics at one-on-one. It's how do you ensure that the resources you have now is enough, but also what you'll need in the future will still be there for the future generations. And we're not doing a great job at that. So if people are willing to um, 
this is where the sometimes the controversy comes in about um, volunteers and um, interns and um, paying them, not paying them, doing it, making sure they don't be taken. So this is the way I think about it. Mm-hmm. Because did you guys intern in college? Yeah. yeah. Were you paid for your internship? Yes. yes, I I interned for uh, JP and Nomura, so two different banks, and well, I, and for Steph, he he interned at EY, Ernst and Young, and Deloitte. Let's just say y'all had a regular person's internship. Okay, let's just say <laughs> no, seriously, because that's even that's even elite a little bit, right? Can we can we say that that's no, that's no, the, no, no that's a small it, percentage it, of people who get into those internships. It, it, and that's if fair. you don't go to a certain schools or you don't have a certain criteria or certain minority programs that you're a part of, you're not gonna get in. Like, exactly. Yeah, that's just what it is. So George, what do we do with all of those people who fit that? Where do they go to get skilled? Where do they go to get work experience? How do they become competitive for this gig economy that we know is coming and already is here? They won't be. So if you can use the volunteer space or the the ethos around the fact that it is, you can see it as, okay, this is for it. But me, I see it as you need experience to be competitive. So these companies, they may not be able to pay you immediately, but we, as, as the network orchestrator of these two parties, are building a platform where, okay, cool, you can give a few hours out of the week, we're going to make sure that you're fresh. Because you was going to spend your money on the Jordans anyway. You were going to spend your money on those headphones anyway. Why not get skilled work experience that you could put on your resume and make you and your community more sustainable mm. and get fresh versus just like, oh, no, I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. They don't, uh, they don't pay me. I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. Because the research and how it's looking, it's, it's a, you know, there has to be more solutions for people to get skill and more experience. And if we can do that in the volunteer space and in the internship space, um, we become more solution, solution oriented than we are to just say, okay, well, let's just see who creates more opportunities for us to get in and because that's not happening. And I was going to quickly say stuff to those kids or to those young women and men rejoice that feel like the gig economy doesn't really pay enough. Like, you know, people that do DoorDash or they do Uber Eats and they're like, uh, yeah, I'm tired of this. They're not paying me enough. I got bills to pay. I got to make moves. To those people, you say what? I say up your skill. The more value you add to the world or whatever you do, the more money you get. If you just say, I'll I'll just give me money because I, my whole thing will be as an employer, okay, what do you do great? And does that greatness match what you're asking monetarily? Mm. You have to have more skill. That's, I don't know any other way. And I've really thought about it, Um, you know, very seriously, how can we ensure, you know, that more things are equitable? And the answer is more skill, adding more value. You add more value to the marketplace, you will increase um, the reward side for you when it comes to money. So if a person is saying, oh, I don't want to do DoorDash, I don't, then I'll ask them, okay, cool. Well, what do you want to do? How can we 
make sure you have the skills you need to be the most competitive because it seems like you want to be competitive because you want more money because everyone out here wants more money. The person that gets it is the one who knows someone or can get in or the person who's the best at what they do. Mm. That's fair. That's, that's fair. I, I, some of the questions that um, that I have just relate to to that last point. So it seems as if though then the, the discussion would shift to this serving as a stopgap measure of sorts to get this person to the next level wherein they can yeah. compete in a space like a fiber or an upwork or yes. you know search for more conventional means of employment. Yeah. Um, assuming they've gotten to a point where they're competitive against the remaining um you know 40 or 50 percent of individuals that hold those those traditional roles. Um so the question that I, I have to you then is, okay, so the individual on this end is not, not getting paid, but I assume these services for these small businesses um, are not free. Um, so what is, the, what is the, the payment structure? And you don't have to get delve into extreme specifics, yeah. but you know, how, does, yeah. how does Borrow as a company con continue to keep the lights on? Yeah, so um, the way that, just a really quick background, the way that our labor laws work, um, volunteers can only work for nonprofits. There's not really limit though. It, it's crazy. Like you can just go and work for a nonprofit full time. What? <laughs> and the crazy thing for me is like, wait, this person can work for a small business, and the small business can actually um, grow economy in this locality and, and and do well for what that community needs at large for the schools, for the the property rates, all those things. But Nope, no, 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 because you're a nonprofit, you can get free labor, even though if you really start to understand what nonprofits, nonprofits are amazing and great, but not all of them are starving. A lot of nonprofits make a lot of money and way more money than a lot of small businesses. So for them to get free labor and small businesses that are trying to start out and add value to their communities, for them to say, no, you can't have any free labor because you're for profit. Although you haven't made profit and haven't made revenue and most companies don't make revenue or profit until years later, to me is just, again, a dated um, system and policy that does not work for today's, how we need to be thinking about the future work. It just doesn't work that way. but. Volunteers work for nonprofits. <clears throat> so that's why we, we've added the internship side. So small businesses can be able to get, um, and this, the internship component adds a, a bit more um, structure on it. Um, so we recruit at schools who offer internship credit, or we ensure that companies can pay like a stipend or it will be more affordable than hiring someone on the other platform. And most times these companies also need to just get from A to B. You know, um, we'll, as we start to scale and expand, we'll pull from the pro bono and the corporate um, um, companies who have professional skills and their, their corporations have um, CSR or corporate social responsibility departments where they say, okay, we're going to give our skill to people who need it. Same, similar. So we, we're just maximizing that, um, that functionality. So I would say, to answer your question, Seth, I would say the way that we work for Vower, so our platform is you exchange your skill for points. And these points are your buying power. 
So say for instance, you did a gig because you're in finance and this company needed you to look at their books or help them with something. You did that for a few hours. You got 10 points. You go on our uh, platform and you can buy you know, gift card or something for your 10 points, or, you know, you did that maybe two times, two, three times. Oh, you, now you get some AirPods. Now you, so instead of the cash that you would have spent the few hours of spare time that you um, would have spent on Instagram or something else, not saying there's nothing wrong with it, nothing wrong with Instagram, <laughs> nothing wrong. Cause people be productive the way they be productive, but some of your hours just sort of like doing whatever you earn the rewards and you're able to use those to help someone who wouldn't have had that expertise otherwise. And so you're, you're offering a lot of, of value to, to the world, but also you're getting something back for, from it. And um, so we regulate sort of which company can get which type of help until the policies are changed where people can just exchange their skill. Like the, we, we envision a world where literally your skill can pay for your tuition, lower your interest rates, or buy you a fresh pair of Air Jordan 13s. Why do we have to have, um, well, I understand why we have to have it, but I, I, we just believe in a world where we'll start to move towards what's best for uh, sustainability, what's best, and the fact that we actually can, we should. Yeah, that. And it's better than a pizza pizza because they would just be giving you a piece of pizza and a t-shirt and say, go about your business. Thank you for building this house or this whole neighborhood of houses. And that's it. We're like, nah, we get you some J's. Thank you for that. And you, you know, it feels a little bit more respectful or, or reciprocate a little bit more gratitude. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for explaining that. Could you get into your thoughts around entrepreneurship, but specifically black entrepreneurship, right? Because it seems as if, and I say this all the time, I may, I may just coin a phrase, but I think right now we're in the golden age for black entrepreneurship. For sure. Things, the way things are turning and all it took was a whole pandemic and yeah. the Black Lives Matter movement for people to realize, all right, like we have to source this, this talent for people to yeah. just create startups to impact the community and impact the world. Talk about the state of Black entrepreneurship and where it's at now and where do you think it's going? Yeah, and I'm definitely no expert here. I sometimes think about that question and like a little bit of it sort of bothers me because it, it, it has an assumption tag to it as though prior to COVID or, or George Floyd or Black Lives Matter, that we weren't in a state of capability or uh, readiness and that we needed the help of these corporate spectators and, and people to say, okay, now they're ready, here's the resources. And for me, it's like, oh man, we're still kind of far away from actually understanding the true basis of entrepreneurship that comes with the freedom of saying I can build something and be really great at it and sell it in this marketplace um, and scale and thrive from there. And I think the assumption in the background of that question, why it's so problematic, is because it still kind of goes on this lens of um, 
you know, the fees, you know, needing so much capital and needing all this to be this, I don't know, because there's a lot of small tech companies or small entrepreneurs that I know that make a lot of money and they, they just uh, have an embroidery shop or they sew or um, uh, they have like a print t-shirt company. No, no thrill, no bells and whistles, but they make a lot of money from it. Or this guy, um, Maddie J. Do you guys know Maddie? He's on. He's a lot on like Clubhouse, and he has been doing a lot. And but like entrepreneurs like him teach you how to make your own side hustles using Turo or Airbnb and build up your wealth from there. And even thinking about the susus, the susu craze over the summer. Were you guys in a susu? No, no. Well, they got me. They got me like two, three times. <laughs> two, three times because really I was like, yeah, this is, I felt disempowered by the whole ideal. Like I, I, I'm a communal economics. Like I love to build you know, together if everyone's on the same mind and just the pockets of how we are, not saying, yeah, how we are. People start losing trust after they got their bag. It was like, I don't know if you come send that money back. And we waiting for this last person. You're not going to get your last what you done. And I'm like, this is just a lot. So I say that to say, it's a beautiful space. A lot more I'm seeing black and brown, people of color, in the same room around entrepreneurship, I think that we, um, if we're if we're just talking about in the sense of like talent and skill, of course that's always been there since the breath that we've had in our lungs. Um, but I think the awareness around not needing certain systems to approve and to say you're ready is the what I'm really excited about is that empowerment and understanding that we can work. Um, you know, work just as hard and do just as well with, with our resources and skill to create a reality that we think it best suits us in our lives. Yeah. I think we I think we are in a, a place where we're sl not slowly but surely, but we're we're inching ever close to that goal, inching ever closer to that reality. Um it's taken us maybe longer than it than it should have, but um I think now things are finally starting to finally be put in place such that we can we can realize that vision. Um one final question that I have for you before we close out the, the interview today is you know you've done a lot, right? Um you've been involved in a number of different things. Um you've had an extensive career. So looking back on all of it, you know, what are three pieces of advice you would give to your younger self? Oh, you did that. You did the eye roll there. What happened? What happened? You was ready for this um, one? You're like, I don't know if I'm feeling this one. What's up? <laughs> no, it's not that because I, I do think of that. And uh, man, this is totally how. <clears throat> okay, yeah, let's go there. I'll say this. Um, as I'm realizing also too, like being a woman in this space, and I see all the men. Um, uh, and and black women at that. And black woman at, at black woman, yes, of course. Oh man, yes. Um, it's such a beautiful and empowering thing, but it also not but also it um, it makes you very aware of all the different. Um, I would say. Ooh, how can I phrase this? Um, all the different communities or, or, or maybe circumstances that are unique 
to me that's not unique to of course not of course not um, other races but even like black men in this space um, um, men in general typically have like a nurture economy someone at home or someone who kind of nurtures the well-being of their lives or making sure like they they sort of have if they're married or if they have a, a girlfriend or whatever that nurture piece is there <laughs> a black woman you're in this space you're working long hours it's like yeah i want to pull it to my stay-at-home boyfriend or my stay-at-home <laughs> he doesn't have to stay at home but i do understand why you just want you want that food there you just want mm-hmm. It's okay. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, you just want that support, and you don't really. uh, And so maybe what I would have said to my younger self one is just like, yeah, just like with more success comes more options. Just you know. Do 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 you think there's a double standard there? I don't think anyone set a double standard, but I definitely, for sure, absolutely, you know, it's way easier. Like, like for instance, when I go over friends for weekend, like if I if we spent a weekend with friends and someone decided to cook and I woke up and food there, I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this person, right? Let's just say like me working hard on this company, I go home and like the food is done, uh, houses, I'm like, oh, my love tank is being filled. And if he's looking at me to do that, I'm like, oh man, things have changed. Like I got, you know, I'm building something and I kind of need you to be kind of just supportive or just kind of do that. And I don't really know how black men are, you know, trying to hear that. I don't really know. I don't know. But I do know I would tell my younger self, you know, don't try to fit into ideation of what your mother or excuse me your grandmother generations before you felt that they had to be I mean that just comes with like the feminine side of like being a woman and offering nurture and support but also realizing it where I am right now I need that probably more than he'll get it from me um the second thing is to just just know that this shit is gonna work out right like you don't have to check and jive. You don't have to do any of that. Actually, you could just be you and be great. And everything that you are putting out is just attracting back to you. It wants so much for it to work out for me. It's not the opposite. Like I gotta go and oh, I must, I must, I'm just wearing myself down. No, like do the work, tap into that energy that is just attracting itself back to me, putting out good work doing service for others, ensuring that we're building something that will build a great tomorrow. All of that is like me saying to the universe here and the universe saying, oh, here, 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 like just throwing all of those things back to me. And then the third thing, I definitely would say, girl, date more, get out there because you think you're waiting on this moment or this person and you're missing all this energy that you could just like young energy, great looking woman, just Enjoy it. Enjoy where you are. Enjoy the presence, and don't try to put too much pressure. Mm. I, I was, I was definitely deep there, Queen. We, yeah. we appreciate you. Appreciate yeah. your time. You dropped so oh, thank much. Thank you, guys. Jen. This was amazing, and we. we Can I say this. one last thing? Yes, go ahead. Oh my go gosh, ahead. I love black men. I love what you guys are doing. 
I'm I'm very honored to just sit here and, and someone, you know, just two people come together with this idea to share space, to share concepts, but also just um, what it took for you guys to be where you are. Like, it, it's not lost on me that it took a lot because of where we live and who we are and who you guys are in this world. So I'm just so grateful because it means a lot to just know you guys exist. And so when we do talk to young, you know, water boys, I'm like, look, you have options. You know, you can be whatever you want to be. And if you don't have examples, I know two. Now I know two more. Mm. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, and, yeah. and vice versa, right? The feeling is mutual. If there's yeah. any black woman there who thinks that they don't have a role black model. Black women know or, now. Like, they know now. And you and you wanted the examples for them, yeah. right? Like, so to be like. fair, so it's just like uh, we appreciate what you're doing. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I I I fell in love with the concept once I first got on the phone with you. Like, um, just having that ambition to create power and and seeing what it could be or where it could go. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm very excited for it. And awesome. you you know we're gonna check on you, you know we're gonna yes. keep in touch. But yeah, we, we appreciate your time and, and thank you for, for joining us on a on a episode of Dream Shakers. Dream Shakers, let's go. Hey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs>